My heart is fixed, O Lord. My heart is fixed. My heart is fixed, O Lord. My heart is fixed. And Acts chapter 3 says this. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, I am very aware that my words will not be your words unless you make them that. I'm very aware, Lord, that my words will do nothing to impact us and challenge us and transform us unless you make that happen. So, Lord, we together as a body ask you to visit us with your presence, even as you did during the celebration and worship this morning. Visit us with your presence, Lord God, to make the word come alive, Lord. Make it happen. Make it real. Make it vibrant and apply it to our life, Lord. This isn't something we can conjure up on our own, God. We need you. We'd ask that you come. In your name we pray. Amen. We just finished a series on Christmas and on tangling the tinsel. And one of the themes that came out quite a bit uh, during that series was God's love for us, God's passionate love for us, God's desire for us. We saw that God has got, you'd almost call it a hunger for us, a craving for us, a thirst for us. As we said a number of times during December, and it bears repeating again and again, It's nothing short of incomprehensible. It's nothing short of almost absurd and irrational. But it's certainly nothing short of grandiosely beautiful, if that's a word, that the God who made the universe and who spoke all the stars into existence and spun out the galaxies just by speaking them and and holds into his hand and keeps in existence every cell and every molecule and every atom that exists, every breath we breathe, every heartbeat we have, every thought we think comes directly from him. It's incredible that that God, so powerful, so majestic, and so awesome, has got this hunger and passionate burning love for Greg Boyd or for Debbie Sparrow, or for John, or Sue, or you, or you, or you. It's, it's, it's incredible. God hungers. Do you ever love it? Have you ever loved like that, or do you love anyone like that? You know, where you just got to, it's almost a frustrating kind of love because it's like there's nothing you can do to express it right. You know, you just, you want to hug them and squeeze them and kiss them and love them and talk to them all the time. You know, usually we feel like that with our kids, don't we? I was talking to a mother out here outside the nursery last week, and one of the things I noticed, and I brought it to her attention because it was so cute, was that about every third word, she'd kiss her baby's forehead. Watch mothers when they're holding their little baby or infants. It's just, they'll be talking to you, and they don't even know. It's like a reflex. It's instinct taking over. But they say, well, how, how are you doing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had a good day, and, and I just, and, and then the poor kids, you know, I was getting kiss slobber all over the head. It was, but it's like they can't love the kid enough. You know, you just got to kiss, 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 kiss. Something like that, only infinitely more intense, is the way God loves us, the passion that God has for us. He pursues us, what one author called the hound of heaven. He's always after us, always chasing us, always wanting us. And when he finds the littlest opening, and it doesn't have to be a whole lot, when there's just a little crevice, a little crack, a little opening in the human heart, This God pours in there like air in a vacuum, just rushes in. 
Give me something to work with. That's all he asks. Give me something to work with. And when there's a little crack, a little opening, God rushes in and takes up residence and starts doing his transforming work, starts doing his changing. The first thing that this passionate God does when he gets a little bit of our heart, and that's all he needs, the first thing he does is he places in our life a desire for him. He begins to place in us a desire that in a small way echoes his desire for us. In this way, he's mirroring himself in us. He mirrors himself in us by bringing about holiness and sanctification, but he also mirrors himself in us by reproducing in us a little bit of his hunger for us. We begin to hunger for him sort of like he hungers for us. And the farther down the road we go on that, the more our hunger and desire grows. Inside of every believer... However far along or however new you are to the Christian walk, inside of every believer there's a desire, a thirsting after God, a thirsting after a righteousness that is not your own, a thirsting after one whose power is not your own. You maybe haven't theologized it yet, you haven't thought it out yet, maybe you're stumbling and falling at every step, but there's a desire, maybe imperfect, maybe squandered, maybe squashed, maybe deadened by sin, but the the, the desire is there. And really, the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life is a matter of God fanning that desire in our life for Him. It's God's desire creating a desire in us. And the whole of the Christian life is the coming together of those two desires, those two passions, those two hungry souls, those two thirsty souls meeting one another. God's hunger for us creating in us a hunger for God in the whole of the Christian life. It's about this relationship of mutual hungering. It's the epitome of love. As we've said before, the essence of all relationships is communication. It's conversation. When it comes to God, the fancy word we use for God talk is prayer. What that means is this. That prayer, prayer coming out of the hunger of a human heart, is at the center of what Christianity is all about. It is the wheel, it's the, the axis of the, uh, the axle of the wheel, it, it, it's, it's the hub around which the wheel rotates. It's at the center of all that Christianity is about, prayer. Prayer is where our hunger for God and God's hunger for us come joined together and, and becomes expressed and becomes cultivated and the desire begins to be fulfilled. God's desire for us and our desire for him. Prayer is at the center of everything. And everything that the Christian is, everything the Christian does, everything the Christian shall ever be, flows out of prayer, out of the meeting of those two desires, God's desire and our desire. William Carey, the great spiritual author, said this, prayer, fervent, secret, believing prayer, is at the foundation of all that is godly. And he's right. The foundation of all that is of God in our life is prayer. Whatever closeness with God we feel, whatever presence of God we feel, whatever Christ-likeness we begin to take on, whatever spiritual power we have to do warfare, whatever holiness we might have, it all comes out of prayer. Whatever joy in the Holy Spirit we'd ever experience, whatever love and peace in the Holy Spirit we'd ever experience, all of it is a direct result of a prayer relationship with God. Not necessarily a five minutes here and a five minutes there, but a whole prayer attitude, an openness to God, where your hunger drives you to, toward, towards God, the God who hungers for you. It all comes out of prayer. 
The same that's true of, of us individually is true of us as a church. Prayer is at the foundation of, any, of everything. I don't think I could overemphasize this if I tried with all my heart. Whatever spiritual dynamism this church or any church experiences is the result, the direct result of prayer. Whatever extent we see God move in our services, to whatever degree this church is empowered to see people brought to God and healed by God and transformed by God, to whatever degree we, we, this church is empowered to see people saved, to see God do miracles like he did in the New Testament, to, to whatever degree this church is empowered to grow and become a vibrant community of, of believers, to whatever degree this church is empowered to make passionless Christians passionate, to whatever extent we do anything for the kingdom of God, spiritual warfare for the kingdom of God, saving people for the kingdom of God, to whatever degree we do any of that, it's the direct result of prayer. What we've been seeing happening so far, I mean, I sit up here and I look out there and I'm just sort of freaked out. We, we've been around for three months and, and this is a little overwhelming for me to, to see what God is doing. But I, I know this, that it's the result of I don't know how many people, but there's a core group of people that are praying consistently for this ministry. It's a result of prayer. Whatever happens in the kingdom of God is the direct result of prayer. One of the things that disturbs me a great deal is that a lot of the, the thinking that's going on now about church planting. Before we started this church, we, we did a lot of studies on church planting and looked at this model and that model and this way of doing it and this thing and all these little tricks and gimmicks, whatever. And you read a lot. And there's a lot of talk and a lot of thinking and a lot of energy put forth and marketing skills and, and PR stuff and how to do it right and how to build this and how to acquire this and how to do the music just right and all that kind of stuff. And those aren't, aren't bad things. Those are okay things to talk about. But they are useless if there is not a foundation of prayer. And if you've got a foundation of prayer, you can pretty much screw up a lot of that other stuff and it's still going to go all right. Whatever God wants to happen is going to happen if there's a commit, commitment to pray. Prayer is at the center of the whole thing. The Christian life revolves around it. Our life is as Christ-like as our prayer life is committed. Our life becomes as sanctified as our prayer life is persistent. We become spiritually empowered to the extent that our prayer life is an ongoing reality in our life. We have power to pray effectively and fervently when our prayer life is committed and, and when it becomes a high priority in our life, it's the center of everything we're about. Here's the problem. I can say that to you, and I've said it before. But I've got to ask myself whether I really believe that. I should love when a preacher does that. <laughs> oh, yeah. What you believe is shown a lot more by what you do than by what you say. And I know what I just said was theologically correct. I know that. But I don't know if it's a reality that's really hit to the gut of my life. I, don't, I can say that prayer needs to be our highest priority, the first thing in our life. If God's the most important reality in our life, and prayer is the most important thing we do with God, then prayer should be the most important thing we do in our life. And I can say that, and it's theologically correct, but it's not a reality in my life. I don't at the beginning of the month or the beginning of the day. That's all the time that I'm going to have for prayer and make it the sine qua non, that which is not going to be encroached on no matter what. I don't know if I really believe it. Something in me wants to believe that and wants to live consistent with that, but I don't know if I really do. 
When I read the Gospels, I'm convicted. I've been studying for this series on prayer. We're going to start a series on prayer now. Maybe this is one of the reasons why I was a little hesitant to do this. Because this is going to be convicting me all over the place. But I've been reading the Gospels, and they convict me. I read about Jesus, how Jesus... The Bible says a number of times it was his custom, it was the ordinary thing for Jesus to get up in the morning before anyone else woke up and to go into a lonely place in the desert and to seek the Lord and be with the Father. That was his custom. And I know that I need prayer a hundred times more than Jesus ever needed prayer, but I don't do that very consistently. Oh, sure, if the Lord wakes me up at four in the morning and I can't get back to sleep, then I'll do it. And I'll credit myself with it. But it's not like an ongoing reality. I read about how Jesus, Luke chapter 4 says it was his custom, it was the ordinary thing for him to go to the synagogue and pray. You know, the Jews in the first century, they ordinarily went to the the, the temple or the synagogue three times a day for an hour of prayer. Morning, noon, and night, they had an hour of prayer. That was his standard procedure, three hours a day of prayer. And Jesus was, that was part of what Jesus, a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish man did. And that was on top of his, however long he spent in the desert before anyone else got up. And I need prayer a thousand times more than Jesus ever needed prayer, but I don't do that. And I read about the disciples. We read about them in Acts chapter 3. How it was simply the time of prayer that day. They went in the temple at noon to worship God and to pray. That's just what they did. They did it actually three times a day. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to, you know, wrestle with it. It was just what they did. They were committed to it. Their heart was steadfast. They went and they prayed. And I need prayer a lot more than disciples did. But I don't do that. There's something inside of me. Maybe it's just the little crevice that God found to put in the little desire. There's something in me that longs for what they have. That longs for that relationship. That longs for that vibrancy. That longs for that reality. That longs to have that. I don't know about three hours a day. I I don't know if I could fit that in this modern world. But it hungers for that kind of prayer life. I read about this. In preparation for this series, I've been reading some of the spiritual giants on prayer. Madame Guyon and Francis Fenelon and Charles Finney and Charles Wesley and St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Augustine and some of these others. And I read about their stuff and I got conviction all over me because these people lived prayer. They breathed prayer. They looked forward to prayer. They rejoiced in prayer. They, They felt awkward if they weren't in prayer. They learned how to pray throughout their day, their minds being on the Lord, talking with the Lord, having that conversation which is the essence of life itself. An ongoing thing in their mind. They had that. And they talk about an experience of the presence of God, a fullness of God, an ecstasy with God that they'd have in in, in their prayer. And I need prayer a whole lot more than they do, and, and maybe you do too. But I don't pray like that, and therefore I don't experience what they experience. But there's something inside of me that longs for that. I'm hungry for it. And maybe you're hungry for it too. Are you hungry this morning for something? I'm just appealing to that little crevice in your heart where God's working and God puts a little desire. Look within and ask yourself, are you hungry for something a little bit more? Are you hungry for more than just the Sunday morning routine? Are you tired of church, the routine of church? Are you tired of just the occasional hit and miss prayer life, the occasional hit and miss devotional life? Do you know that there's more? Is there something inside of you that's saying there's got to be more to it? I want more, but I want a vibrant relationship, a passionate relationship, a relationship that makes a difference in my life. I know it's there. I read it in the Bible. I hear about it with the great saints throughout church history. And is there something in your life that hungers for that, that's thirst for that? 
Thomas Merton says that the desire of God is God's greatest gift to us. And really, it's a concealed promise. Because God doesn't give us the desire to leave it unfulfilled. What you desire of God, the fact that you desire it, shows that there's something more for you to enter into. And where I'm at now in my life is just with this hunger. I desire more. I desire more. I hunger for more. I want to move into that reality. I, I, I want more of God. I've got to have more of God. Are you saying that to yourself? More of the love, more of the joy, more of the peace, more of the power. I want to see God move in my life, and I want to see God move in this congregation the way God said he would move when people pray. I want to like the New Testament. Is that asking too much? The question i got to ask myself is this. Are you willing to do what the New Testament people did to get what they got? This is why we decided to have a series on prayer. We're going to start off this new year going back to what is most fundamental and talking about prayer. I've got to tell you that, that Paul first suggested this several months ago, and uh, I thought to myself, nah, not. <laughs> How are you going to have four whole sermons on prayer? I mean, one sermon maybe, but at four will get boring. I mean, what do you talk about? Come on. I mean, you know, gee, what do you, you know, how are you going to ring this out? He really felt strong about it, though, and I think he was right. Began to pray about it. He began to pray about it. Began to talk more about it. Began to study it. I began to read a lot more about prayer. I'll tell you where I'm at right now. I don't know how we're going to get through it in eight weeks. (laughs) And I can assure you that it's not going to be boring. There is a world here. A world in Scripture and throughout church tradition about prayer life and how to make it a living thing, a real thing, a joyful thing, an ecstatic thing, something that changes your life. There's a world here, and I don't think I've ever been as excited about prayer. I've never preached more than one sermon at a time on prayer, and now I'm just dying to do it. I'm filled with anticipation. I'm excited about it. I feel the, the, the feeling I have in my gut is, is, is like, Here's kind of the picture is that, that I, I'm on, the, I'm on the, the precipice of a volcano, on the opening of a volcano. I can hear it bubbling, and I can feel the heat. I feel like it's going to explode because I know this. When I begin to live out my desire and pursue God in prayer, and when we as a congregation more and more increasingly with greater intensity and passion and fervency pursue God in prayer, the promise is that it's going to bust loose. And I think what we're seeing right now already as the bubbling forth of the volcano is starting to spew out its lava, what we're beginning to feel is, is, is a tremor of an earthquake. And God alone knows how far we'll go, we'll go if we plunge into prayer. I want to plunge into prayer like I've never plunged into it before. I want to dive into it deeply and explore that territory and talk about that territory. And what a lot of the next eight weeks is going to be about will be largely me sharing you what I'm finding, sharing with you what I'm finding. Maybe it'll be stuff you already know. Maybe it'll get nuanced, which you already know. Maybe it'll be totally new. But in different ways, I think it will challenge you. Where do we start? I want to finish up this morning just by giving a word about where do we start when we're talking about prayer. If you're learning baseball, you don't just read a book about the theory of baseball. If you want to play baseball and you want to play it well, you've got to do more than read about it. You've got to begin to commit yourself to practice, to do what the baseball players do. Learn how to swing. You've got to pick up a bat and you've got to put on the glove and you've got to try to catch the ball. And sometimes you get knocked in the face and sometimes you, you strike out, but that's what you've got to do if you're going to learn how to play baseball. You can't just do it reading a book. Or if you're going to learn how to play piano, <coughs> you just can't read a music theory, become a 
music theorist and think that you're going to sit down on a piano and play something from Rachmaninoff. It doesn't work that way. You learn to play piano by doing what piano players do. You begin to practice, and it sounds kind of lousy at first. It feels awkward at first. It's hard to make that half hour or hour commitment a day to do it, but you begin to do it. And so it is in the spiritual realm. The way to begin a prayer life, before we talk about theories and before we talk about how-tos and things like this, the, way to, the place to start, and maybe it's the most fundamental thing to say, is with a commitment to do it. We'll be talking a lot about what the Bible says about prayer and what church history and different theologians say about prayer and, and examining different ways to pray. But if all we do is talk about it, if all we do is theorize about it and speculate about it, it will amount to a hill of beans. It will be absolutely worthless. It will come to zero, nothing, not a zippo. Unless there's a commitment to begin to do what we're talking about. It starts with commitment. It starts with a discipline. A commitment to pray. The psalmist says in Psalms 57.7, the verse I quoted earlier, My heart is fixed, O Lord. My heart is fixed. What we need, and hey, it's New Year's, maybe this is what we need, a New Year's resolution. Some people don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but I do, starting now, because I'm preaching on it. A resolution to fix our heart, to say, I'm going to commit myself to this. I'm going to be resolved about this. The fact of the matter is, as you know in other areas of your life, that without commitment, without discipline, without resolution, without a firm decision, nothing really takes place. No change ever occurs. God can put the desire for Him, the hunger for Him, the thirst for Him in our hearts. But desire without a commitment to follow it through comes to nothing. You know what I'm talking about. How many thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in our country desire to lose weight? Okay, I'm getting too close now, aren't I? I don't mean to step on. I just, I just picked one out of the hat. I'm not picking on anybody. But they, just, they wish they could lose weight. They, think, they, they spend a lot of time thinking about losing weight. I wish I could lose weight. I desire to lose weight. Someday I'm going to lose weight. And they never do. Because there's not the commitment, the sacrifice, the discipline that's necessary to get, bring that desire into reality. You can desire to be real successful in business. You can desire to be a millionaire. And in a proper context, that's not a bad desire. You desire to get ahead. You desire to, to, to just really go forward. But that desire, as you know, unless there's some commitment, some resolution to bring it into reality, nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. You'll die wishing you could be rich. But won't, you'll never be successful. Nothing comes without commitment, without resolution. You don't just think your way into running a marathon. It doesn't work that way. The desire has to be enfleshed, it has to be incarnated, it has to be substantiated by a resolution to do it and to pay the price. There is nothing good in human life, nothing that's really grand in human life that comes about without commitment, without resolution. Think about it. We can marvel at Handel's Messiah and we think it's so beautiful and so wonderful and so grace-filled. We marvel at that. But the only reason Handel could ever compose the Messiah is because there were years of discipline, schooling, and composition that went into making the Messiah the Messiah. The, the, the song of the Messiah the Messiah. There were sacrifices, obstacles that had to be overcome, times when Handel felt like quitting, but he didn't. And we marvel at the result. 
the results there just because the commitment was there. Or watch a ballet dancer, you know, uh, the ballet dancers or the gymnasts, and, and they look so graceful the way they can just do that. Actually, I don't really get off on that, but other people do. The, the, the grace of, of the ballet. Why am I trying to do ballet for you guys? You know how they are, they're just so free and they float through the air and, and all this other kind of stuff. And you think, how spontaneous, how graceful, how easy it comes for them. Hogwash. It doesn't come easy for them. They've been working at it and working at it. Someone was willing to pay the price. Someone was willing to count the cost. Someone was willing to sacrifice and do what needed to be done to get to that position. And so it is with anything that's worth achieving in human life. It takes commitment. It takes resolution. It takes discipline. Scott Peck even says this. The, uh, Scott Peck, the author of The Road Less Traveled, uh, People of the Lie, and other really, really good books. He says this. All human maturity, listen to this, all human maturity is the result of learning how to delay gratification. All human maturity is the result of learning how to be committed, which he defines as a willingness to sacrifice momentary desires for a greater desire. That is how he defines maturity. He defines immaturity as an inability or an unwillingness to forsake momentary desires for a greater desire. Because then you never get that greater desire. Your, your life is spent reacting to, responding to, all these little momentary desires that you want this, I want this, I want this. And yeah, you want this other thing way down the road to be successful, to be a ballet dancer or what have you, but you're never mature enough to forsake the momentary desires to get it. In fact, Scott Peck says that most psychological neuroses, 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 whatever, comes as a result of people being unable or unwilling to deny themselves momentarily for a greater good, a higher desire. And so it is spiritually. So it is spiritually. We live in a culture that doesn't like to hear this kind of stuff. We live in a culture that is now. I want it now. Give it to me now. Give it to me without effort. I want to, I do, I want to receive it. I don't want to have to work for it. We live in a culture of immediate gratification. You got a, you got a, 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 a sensation, you got a, a movie that you want to do, you just do it. You got a hunger, you just get it. You just do this. We, we live in a culture that indoctrinates us to think that way. And it creeps into our Christianity. It hits me all over the place. We want the power of Paul. We want the spiritual dynamism of Peter. We want the relationship of Jesus, but we want it now. We want it full, and we don't want to do anything to get it. We got a gimme, gimme, narcissistic grab bag kind of Christianity floating around, which just says, I should be able to blab it and grab it. That God is sort of there for me, the Santa Claus in the sky. We want it now, we want it perfect, we want it full. We don't want to do anything to get it. We want the holiness, we want the, the spiritual empowering, we want the spiritual dynamism, we want to see God work, we want to see God do miracles, we want to see our lives transformed, we want to be healed, we want our marriages to get together, we want all of that, but we want it while we sit on our duff, and it just doesn't work that way. It never happens by accident. Nothing happens by accident. Handel's Messiah didn't come about by accident. Ballet dancing doesn't come about by accident. Being able to hit the ball like Kirby Puckett doesn't just happen. Nothing just happens. It happens when there's a commitment to go towards that, to strive towards that. It comes when there are people who are willing to be committed about something. When they have their heart fixed. When there's a resolution there. Paul likens the spiritual life to that of an athlete. Now follow me on this. An athlete. Paul says, 
And these are maybe words that we don't want to hear. They're certainly words that I don't like to hear, but the words that I got to hear. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I beat my body daily. I beat my body into subjection daily. This is a guy who wrestled with his body. He says, I crucify myself daily so that I may have that relationship with the Lord. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about a spiritual empowering, that vibrant relationship with the Lord. An athlete has their eyes fixed. Their heart is resolved. Their mind is made up. I'm going for that. I'm going to win. And there's a lot of momentary desires they got to give up along the way. The athlete in training, someone says, hey, have an extra piece of pie. No, i got to watch my weight. i got my eyes fixed on that. Well, why don't you go out with us tonight? No, i, I got to be in training. My heart's fixed on, 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 on getting that medal. What about this convenience? What about this? Why don't you go out with us here? Why don't you sleep in a little longer? No, no, you see, I, I can't do that. My eyes are fixed. I, I, I got I, I to do this. And it's going to take training and sacrifice. My eyes are fixed. And pretty soon he doesn't even have to say no. He doesn't even have to struggle with it. It just happens. Nope, sorry. Uh, 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 that, that's, that's what I'm sh- shooting for. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Fix it. When all is said and done, when, when, when time finally erodes and death finally steals all the other trinkets of our life, there's only one thing that's left. And that's this relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that matters. It's the one thing that's eternal in our life. And when all is said and done, growth in the Lord is growth in willing one thing. And growing out of all of our competing desires and competing distractions. That's commitment. That's commitment. Am I there? No. But I want to move in that direction. And over the next eight weeks, I want us to be moving in that direction. I'm not going to be doing this every week. I'm just trying to lay the foundation here. Are we committed to begin to pursue this? You can know this. If we're not intentional, if we're not intentional about our spiritual walk, if we don't treat our life like a project, something that we need work on, something that we're constantly investing energy in, if we're not intentional about our prayer life, you've got to know this one thing. There is one out there, a very powerful force out there. His name is Satan, and he's very intentional about keeping you away from the Lord. If you're not intentional about growing with the Lord, there's someone who's very intentional and very committed on bringing you away from the Lord. To do nothing to sit and wait not only doesn't get you further, it usually brings you back. If you don't play your trumpet for three years, you not only don't get better at the trumpet, you lose what you had, and so it is spiritually. We've got to be intentional about this because what we're in is nothing short of warfare, and there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. It's time for me to begin to reassess and ask, how intentional am I? What do I really believe? Where is my heart really act at? And I'm, I, I'm convicted in just saying those words. Let me say one final word. It may sound to some here that this isn't very graceful. Talk about commitment and discipline and sacrifice doesn't sound very graceful. We've got a, a model in our minds that grace means grace means that you, what Christianity is about is, is sitting and receiving. And, and there's a truth in that. But that really, if pressed too far, becomes a butchery of grace. Discipline isn't the antithesis of grace. It is the perfect expression of grace. If I love my kids, I will not do them the disservice. I won't do them the cruelty of letting them grow up without learning about discipline, learning about how to deny momentary desires for a greater desire. 
That'd be cruelty to them. That doesn't affirm their personhood. It denies their personhood. Because Scott Peck is right. Personhood and maturity in personhood come as a result of learning discipline. God loves us too much to just say, sit, sit. Don't grow, don't change, don't be transformed, just sit. He loves us too much, and that's why by his grace he dies for us. By his grace he comes into us. By his grace he gives us his spirit. By his grace he gives us a motivation. By his grace he gives us a hunger and thirst for him. By his grace he gives us a love for his word. And by his grace he gives us instruction on how to grow in our relationship with him. It's a perfect expression of grace. And I'm not talking about doing something in order to be okay with God. You'll never get more okay with God than you are right now if you're a believer. You never, you know, he doesn't become happier with you. He doesn't become more pleased with you. He doesn't fall more in love with you. You got all you could ever get right now. But does God have as much of you as he could ever have? That's the question. How much of you does God have? You got all of God. He gave it to you on Calvary. How much of you does God have? How, which is to say, how much of this ocean of riches that God's given us, how much of it are you going to drink of? How much are you going to enjoy? How much are you going to be blessed? That's what we're talking about here. And I don't know about you, but I hunger for it. I really hunger for it. I'm tired of, of uh, status quo. I, I want to move on. I want to shift gears. I want to move deeper. The challenge is for all of us to do that. There's no formula I can give you, like 15 minutes a day or a half hour a day or an hour a day. I don't know. We're all at different places. Hear this and let God process it in your life. Maybe if you haven't prayed before, start with five minutes a day. That will be enough and grow from there. There's no formula attached to this. It's the principle of being committed to something. I challenge you to make a time, to commit a time this new year that you're going to set aside to be with the Lord. And we'll talk about how to do it and all that other kind of stuff down the road. But first comes the commitment, the commitment to do it. I want to close as the, uh, as the musicians come up. I want to close by singing two prayers to the Lord. Our closing prayer will be two songs, one in which we say, God, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. And I want us to sing it as a prayer. Mold me, melt me, use me. Let's sing it, and as we do, open yourself up to God, maybe like you've never done it before. And then we sing, let my life be a sacrifice. Let me be a sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. Let's stand as we close in 